0: Hey, good morning, Bethany Greenlake. My name's Scott, I'm a senior pastor. Bethany, super glad when I get to spend a Sunday worshiping here at Green Lake. I often am at North, but also move around all six locations in kind of our new model of senior pastor. Privileged to begin our series on Mark today, uh, following the way of Christ. Today's message is called The Way. It's simply the way as we look at what it means to journey with Christ. Um, we'd love to pray with you now. Jesus, uh, would you be present here in this moment? Would you help these words of Mark come alive in the teaching and reading today? God, could you help center us in our own stories under your authority? God, we, we desperately want to encounter more of your power, certainly more of your peace. And God, we would ask for more purpose into the season ahead. And so towards those desires, would you speak to us today out of the gospel of Mark as we think more about this journey of our life? In your great name we pray, amen. So message today, like I mentioned, is called The Way. And uh, we're going to get in just a moment, but The Way is kind of a euphemism or way of saying like journey. The journey to Christ, the journey we take with Christ. And as you get to know a bit more of my story, you know that I am a person who loves a great adventure. At one point, I lived in my van driving around America for six months. That's a different sermon for a different day, but I love a great adventure. And so even like little adventures with my family bring me great, great joy. Uh, Just a week or two ago, I got to take my daughter just turning 18 and the rest of my family down to Disneyland for an experience of just like a bit of a capstone here. She's approaching the end of her senior year year of of high school. Just one day. That's all we could afford, but it was a good day. And when we got into Disneyland, we were really interested in seeing what had changed. We had been at Disney in, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years. And there's a lot that's same. It's great. The traditions, it's a small world. I won't sing it for you, but now it's going to be in your head the rest of the day. Pirates, Caribbean, et cetera. But I want to see what was new there and new to us because since we've been, there was Star Wars land. A Star Wars Land, even if you're not a big Star Wars person, uh, it's impressive by the scope of it. Uh, it's like one whole section of Disneyland. And they took this section of Disneyland. It's all things Star Wars now. Like, people are in costume. And, you know, just the way they created this immersive experience. And and the food is all like it's you're on one of the Star Wars planets. And then there's these two rides. And what's interesting in the rides is that they're not like the old rides. Like one of the rides was called the Millennium Falcon. And from the moment we got to the front of the line, it was clear that this wasn't gonna be just like the old rides where you're just sitting past them and just kind of watching. No, they wanted us to be involved. They divided my family of six into pilots, gunners, and engineers, and everyone participated. And as we like took off in the Millennium Falcon, our actions actually controlled the ride a little bit. Like whether we veered left or right or, you know, the bad guys coming at us or whatever they're called, you know, like we were in the story and it was amazing to me because not only was like, did I, I walk around like, oh, our participation was necessary for this. My kids' enjoyment leaped the more they were allowed to be included the more they were allowed to participate in the ride. And it was almost like Disney was saying, it's not enough just to watch anymore. Not enough just to watch anymore. And I'm always wondering like how God is going to speak through my experiences or through culture, whatever. So I'm like walking on Disney. I'm like, oh, that'll preach. Like, that's good. Like, we're not allowed to just watch anymore because I think God's got a word for us as a church in that. And like, hey, people want to participate, People want to be included in what God is doing. One of the things I love at Bethany Green, like in the 7 p.m. service is every time I've been, they have, they have different people from the congregation that are just a big part of the service that are like reading scripture. And, and I know that's going to be part of that 7 p.m. experience. Like we want you to participate, that we're, we're on a journey to Christ together, that we would be a church on the way. We would be on a church on the journey to understanding more of Christ's power, his, his peace, It is plans for us. Like, God, please, would you just use more and more of your authority in our lives? We don't want to just go through the motions. We want to be on a journey together. Three times in the opening section of Mark, this idea of path or journey kind of pops. And so it's almost like, as I start to segue into the gospel of Mark in today's message, it's almost like what what Mark wants us to say is this way of Christ, which will be a gateway to more of your freedom and power, and certainly to, to, to be formed as a disciple of Christ, your participation is incredibly important. Mark is just beckoning people through the pages of his gospel to say, let's take a journey together. And and this word, like the way of Christ, which we've called our sermon series, in the early days of the church, that's actually what they called themselves. They didn't call themselves the church, rather than they called themselves the way, the way. Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and life. So the church saying, we are the way, we are the way to Christ. And so for the next eight weeks here at Bethany, we'll discuss Jesus as the way and how we all as a church will follow him together into the season head. We've got those little bookmarks that you got when you came in or online people. You can find a, uh, the reading plan. I would strongly encourage you, like get, get involved, participate with us as a church. Be reading, starting this week, Mark 1. We're gonna read all the way to Mark 16 and, and kind of eventuate there at Easter. We wanna be on this journey together. And, and why Mark? Well, Mark is this story of the invitation into the way. It's the briefest gospel, but it's action-packed. It's exciting, focused on kind of the main events. Mark is interesting as opposed to to Matthew and Luke, almost by what it includes as much as what Mark omits. In Mark, there's no genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. There's no virgin birth. There's no angels declaring the pregnancy. There's nothing before Jesus' first step in a ministry that we come to today. There's there's no Sermon on the Mount. There's less parables. There's less details about the resurrection. And I think a lot of it is because Mark was written by John Mark, the scribe to Peter. Now, some of the books of the New Testament, you're like, oh, who wrote Hebrews? Like, just pack yourself a lunch because you're going to be there all day. Like, there, there's so many different opinions in, in the church world, but not Mark. Pretty much everyone in the early church agreed that Mark was written by, get ready, Mark, John Mark, the, the, the scribe of Peter, not a disciple himself, but himself being formed by the early church. John Mark's mother, Mary, hosted the early church in her house in Jerusalem, and most think that his house was where they had the Last Supper. So Mark was this young man who came up seeing people formed by Christ. He wrote Mark likely around AD 70, though people have different opinions, and I don't really care to argue about it. But here's what's significant about Mark. It's written to Romans. It's written to to kind of the outsiders of the faith, but Christians— that we're likely needing reminding on the power of Christ on their journey. Who, Christians who were likely either forgetting or under great persecution. And Mark's like, I got to get this down. I know we've been telling these stories kind of orally, but I want to get this down because I don't want us to drift. And I don't want us to forget that the way to Christ is the central part of our identity as the people of God. And in this regard, Mark's old words become new again in our teaching today, because Mark wants to speak to every one of us today in the room, those of you online to say, your life matters, just like a Disney, not enough to just watch anymore, get in the game. And and to do that, Mark has kind of these these three places that I'll take us to in our message that Messiah is declared, the mission has been designed and the meaning for us will be desired. So this is what we'll look at here in the moment's head. Mark's story of Jesus can become for us if we let it, a place of hope and discovery and invitation to the power and and the peace and the purposes of God in our lives. Who we say Jesus is has the ability to impact our journeys to Christ in real and powerful ways. So let's take a look at this first point here. The Messiah is declared. This is a really big deal. Chapter one, verse one. Mark, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark doesn't waste any time. He just starts exactly what he wants us to kind of anchor almost as his thesis statement for the book. And certainly when Jesus came to John, it was kind of his moment of decision where he was ready to enter his public ministry after 30 years. But Mark doesn't waste any words, or to him, what might have been a waste of any words. He just wants to get started at the mission beginning right now, that this is the Messiah. He, he, uses, he uses this incredible lead statement. In journalism, we call it a lead statement, that you have to you know, create the who, what, when, and where in the first 24 words. Some of you have studied journalism. Mark doubles down on that, and he uses just seven Greek words to just say, this is the beginning of of the story that I can't wait for you to to walk into. So these first seven Greek words, uh, Mark says, this is the beginning. And almost like Genesis in the beginning, you know, was God created the heavens and the earth or John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Mark 1.1 is the beginning of an epic true story. Mark is just saying, this is the beginning of something that will change your life if you let it. This is incredible. He's like, I'm gonna tell you this incredible story from the beginning. And this is where it begins to him, of the good news. It's the beginning of the good news. Raise your hand if you need some good news. Anybody need good news? Okay, yeah, me too. And Mark's just saying to these people who've been either discouraged or under a great amount of persecution, this is still good news. That Jesus is the Messiah. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah, is an incredibly powerful word, For Mark, because it's where he says, like, this is the one that has authority, who can give leadership to our lives, who can provide for us. So the Messiah and then Mark concludes his little opening whammo statement, the son of God. And the son of God was Mark's favorite term for Jesus. This is what theologians call Christology, that we would understand that Christ is the center point of the Christian faith. Jesus is the son of God. Mark will use this in chapter one, verse one, and all the way at the end in chapter 16, when Jesus crucified and the Roman centurion saw him suffering and said, surely this man was the son of God. So this term, you're gonna hear more about it in the next eight weeks. It's super significant because it was a word that for the Romans, they had only heard Caesar is the son of God. For Jews, maybe they thought Herod or different people were the son of God. No, no, no. This humble leader from from Galilee, Jesus, is the son of God, the Messiah. And so Mark is is kind of saying, hey, this is the one you've been waiting for. And this is really significant here because Mark goes into kind of an allusion to the Old Testament because it's really significant for Mark to know, for us to know rather through Mark that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God had promised the Messiah from Isaiah to Daniel, the Zechariah to Psalms, and God keeps his promises. I'll read you just a selection from Daniel 7. In my vision at night, Daniel writes, I looked, there before me was one like a son of man, the Messiah, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. He was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that would never be destroyed. And so the plan was that God would send his son, the Messiah, and and now's the time. So God keeps his promises. And I don't know why it's so significant, but God wants somebody in this room or somebody online to be reminded that though you've waited a long time, God will keep his promises to you. And I dare say sometimes the longer we wait to see God break through, the more faith it can grow in us. God Keeps his promises. That's what Mark says here. The Messiah is here. I read this quote recently about Jesus' Messiah that I thought was really important. Jesus is important to us primarily because he is the window through which we see God. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God's love for us becomes visible. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus, the Messiah, is the window through which we see ourselves. And in this regard, Mark's going to ask this question in Mark 8, but it really frames the whole gospel. You're going to hear it over and over and over again. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked his disciples in Mark 8. Who do you say Jesus is? Because who you say he is will inform your journey, your way. And this Jesus, this Messiah, he has an incredible power for your life to be lived in response to him as Messiah It'll change us if we follow him on our journey. I think it's interesting that we look back kind of through historical goggles at the great thinker, C.S. Lewis, and so many quotables from all the Narnia books and all of his nonfiction books. But Lewis wrestled for decades with doubt. He wrestled until he was 32 years old, even saying, is God even real? Because to Lewis, and I was, as a young man, really kind of took up the same mantle. Like, if God is real, it should change everything. I don't want to deal with just this casual faith. And some will say, what's the big indictment about the Christian church is that we don't even believe what we teach anymore. Because if he's the Messiah, it's got to change everything about us. So Lewis wrestled with this and then finally got to a place at 32. Like, you know what? He is Messiah. Messiah. And he wrote a treatise on real belief called Mere Christianity. And the final lines of that, he kind of talks about searching in our journeys that I wanted to share with you. Lewis writes, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death and the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not been given, uh, sorry, not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him. And this is what I don't want you to miss. And with him, everything else will be thrown in. If we pursue more of Christ on a journey, the other things that we seek will fall into place, but we've got to put Messiah first. That declaration, the power we seek is in Messiah. So that's the Messiah declaration. And then the mission of Jesus, which the mission's been designed here in these early verses of Mark, just to give our our journey some purpose and some clarity. I pick up here at Mark 1 verse 2, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you and prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole countryside, all the people went out to him, confessing sins. They were baptized by him in the river. John wore clothing, made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. And this was the message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Really, really significant that the mission of Jesus doesn't start with a press release or some power grab, but by Jesus submitting in baptism. Because the way of this Messiah, to prepare our way back to God, is where Jesus models here, immersing himself in the story of humanity The rest of us, when we're baptized, we're kind of repenting of our desire to be like God and kind of being freed from all that. That wasn't Jesus' story, but still he entered into the way that we would be baptized in order to show a pathway back to God, to give us hope in our journey. This echoes Isaiah 43, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. So John is like Elijah. He's calling people back. And I love this passion translation. He is a thunderous voice of one who shouts in the wilderness, prepare your hearts for the coming of the Lord Yahweh and clear a straight path inside your hearts for him. This is what matters in our hearts, that our journey, our way would be more and more impacted by Jesus. Jesus that our hearts would be changed, not just our mind engaged. These 18 inches, the hardest distance for most humans to go is from, from the head to the heart that our hearts would be entering into a story of submission. And so Be baptized. And here at Green Lake, we're going to have baptisms on Easter Sunday. And I know some of you are like, I'm waiting. It's got to be mid-August. Puget Sound would raise up to like that temperate 68 degrees and there'll be a sunset. And this will definitely be on Instagram. I'm telling you, you know what? Maybe, maybe if you haven't been baptized, don't wait. Because there's something about baptism that isn't your arrival at your like perfect Christian identity, but your submission to all of God wants to do in your life. Because baptism is the one sacrament where it's like, you don't earn any of this. It's all a gift as you submit to the work of the Spirit. You 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 lay back to say, I can't earn it. I can't do it on my own. And if you're here in this room today or watching online and just saying, you know, Scott, I'm just not ready because I'm just not, I'm not good enough right now. I want to say to you, me neither, like none of us are. Like somewhere someone told you a lie that you'll somehow earn yourself to God's good love in your life. And it's just not true. It's not. And so when we're baptized, we're submitting to the power of the spirit in our lives. The second thing John talks about, to be baptized and to confess. Confessing your sins to each other or to the Lord, it's just, it means taking off the veil and being real. You know, there's some stuff that I've become comfortable with that are outside of God's way for me. And I want to turn back to the Lord. So this was John's message. And that's Jesus. He doesn't need that message. He's going to live that message. He doesn't just speak for God. He speaks as God. But he came to the Jordan to kick off his public ministry, that this is what his mission would look like. He would be immersed in the human experience. But for many of us, this is difficult because we submit, but we're often mindful of our own failure, our own discouragement. I mean, the the mental things I tell myself so often pull me out of God's best. We miss what God wants to do because we're telling ourselves an old story. Now, John Mark, I already told you, he was the scribe to Peter. Peter knew that better than anyone. He's the rock built upon a man who denied Jesus three times. And yet, what does Jesus do once he's resurrected? He goes and finds Peter and recommissions him. Your failure does not discourage the work of God in your life. Listen to me at home. Your failure does not discourage your purposes in the world. God has a plan for your life. And I know the enemy wants to tell you that you're not qualified because some failure in the past, God's favorite people persevered through failure, new power working in them through the gift of the Spirit. Peter knew that. John Mark knew that. John Mark knows that. John Mark, remember, and some of you are like, ah, this is going a little deep. Some of you are like Bible scholars. Remember Mark, and John Mark is the same one in Acts 13. He was on the missionary journey with Paul. This is exciting. We're doing new stuff. They get to the city of Perga. They're going to set sail. John Mark, Scripture says, goes home. And Paul's so ticked off, he and Barnabas, Barnabas was John Mark's cousin, they, they fought, they never reconciled. Later, John Mark himself would be restored. And Paul would say, he had ministry to me. He, he confirmed that John Mark learned from his failure of going home to Jerusalem. We don't know why he went home. Listen, sometimes we go home. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we don't make it to where we're trying to go. And then the enemy wants to say, aha, I knew you didn't have the strength to make it on the way to Christ. It's just not true. And the sooner that we can live with God's grace covering us and entering into the full story, we'll know how to stay in the game. How do I know this? Because I coach third grade basketball in the Snow King Youth Club up north. And these third graders, few second graders, team name, Layup Leprechauns. You can't make this stuff up. It was their name because their jerseys were green. And they're, they're second graders, so they're about this all. But I see this all the time with them where they've got some concept of their level of play. And when they don't achieve it, they totally give in and they totally give up. This happened yesterday. But yesterday, this little guy, I won't give his name, but he put this sweet little like crossover in and goes, and I'm loving. I'm like, yeah, I get pretty into it. I'm a little intense, and you're like, I get it. You're a little, you're a lot, Scott, but thank you. Uh, so he makes a crossover, goes, I'm screaming from the bench, and he goes to, you know, like lay it in perfectly, fingertip off the glass. But no, that's not what happens. His arms are this long, like he can't even hardly get it there. And then like the other team run, and then I just see this guy, like he's just you know, walking down the court like this. Meanwhile, the other team scores. And I call a timeout and I grab him and I look in his face and I said, no, you are not allowed to feel like a failure when you miss a shot. Stay in the game. Like they, They've been watching, you know, they've been watching Steph and LeBron, all this, and their bodies can't do the stuff that their minds think they're capable of. And that discourages them. So part of the journey is you got to stay in the game. And I'm speaking to somebody right now that just feels like, man, I've been throwing bricks and just feels like failure. But no, we gotta stay in the game. And the enemy wants to tell us we can't be used from our discouragements or our failures. And that's not how Jesus works. There's a new mission and that's a gift to us. And then we come to this final piece here where the meaning for us, Mark desires that we would make meaning from this text. And there's going to be a gift for us if we can stay in it. There's a gift ultimately for us in our journeys of more purpose as we understand Christ's work in our life. Look at verse 11 from Mark 1. This might be one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven. You're my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. I am well pleased. So many of us have a fear of the father's heart. We never had this kind of unconditional love modeled to us. We never saw it. We never felt it. We never experienced it. And so for many of us, there's a distortion of who the father says we are. We have a distorted father, God image. This verse redeems our broken picture of the Father's heart. This, these words, spoken 2,000 years ago, but as we read them again today, God's saying them in new ways again. I am well pleased. There's got to be meaning for us today. I used to teach high school English. A lot of that was informed that in college I had no desire to study literature But I had this professor that was always talking about meaning-making. It drove me mad, really, because I was used to getting good grades, didn't get good grades in his class. And he's like, go deeper, make meaning, look inside the word, find. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, no, you got to meaning-making, which is the process of kind of, you know, looking at the situations and characters and words and events and statements and literature or life to find meaning for your own journey. And I learned to love it in that class. I learned to teach in Los Angeles and help other young people find meaning through the words of text so that ultimately they would be able to find meaning in their life. Remember the word from Millennium Falcon and Disney? Your participation is necessary. Mark desires for you to make meaning today from these words of God to Jesus. It's not just a word from your past back at youth camp when you said yes to Jesus. It's a word for this season right now. With you, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. You are my son. You are my daughter. What's super significant about the father's heart here with this baptism scene that might be significant to you, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. There's been no water to wine. There's been no blindness spit, mud, but like all that comes later. The walking on water, the stilling of the storms, the beating the cross, it's all going to come. But before that is a word of affirmation. There's a word to anchor Jesus in his identity. Before you try harder or behave in a certain way or perform in a certain way, I just want you, says God to Jesus, receive the full gifts of the spirit and to just know your mind. And know that with you, I'm well pleased. Scripture said that the sky was torn open and it's actually a very kind of violent image. The only other place that Mark uses in his gospel is at the end of the crucifixion scene. It said that the veil was torn open separating humans from God. So this violent image is used on purpose to, to initiate a new era Isaiah 64 had prophesied, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. This was the way God wanted to work. So the sky was torn open, and then the Spirit came like a dove. Some texts say, as a dove. English major moment here, that's a simile. Some scholars are sure that a dove came and landed at Christ. I was like, no, no, it's just as a dove, like a dove. To me, I think there's a an ability for us all to meaning make of what it means. But I do think it's significant. It's not a lightning bolt. It's this beautiful, soft little moment of the Spirit's filling. And I do think, church, right now, after the last couple of years we've had together, you need a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit. You need a divine encounter where that old story is made new again in your heart, that the Spirit would come down like a dove to alight and align in you, to, to bring you the power and the peace and just that purpose, you would reconnect to God's heart. Like a dove, the spirit comes and then Jesus is kind of commissioned. And it's just so significant, certainly for Jesus' ministry. And we're gonna spend the next seven weeks talking about this, but I think I wanna um, end with a little bit more of what the significance might be as you make meaning of this for your journey. Because those words spoken of Jesus certainly were for Jesus in the moment, but they also transcend that because what the gospel tells us is that we became covered in Jesus' blood. We became, by professing faith in Jesus, we become part of Jesus' family, that the spirit of God isn't just something that we would read about in the Bible, that it would live within us. And in that regard, this good news for Jesus, I am well pleased with you, is our good word that we get to receive again and again, that we were grafted in by Jesus' work on the cross for the, anyone that says, I want to follow you, Jesus, all of my days, that Jesus' power lives in us that we get to hear those words of God because we are grafted in. Listen to what Galatians 4 says. When the set time had come, God sent his his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship and daughtership because you are his sons and you are his daughters. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, father. So we're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God made you also an heir. And so that's where we're going to end today. I'm just going to remind you that God loves you and God has anointed you and God has called you and God wants you to hear in new and powerful ways this morning with you. I am well pleased before you do anything. Jesus says, I've got a new word for you. And this is where your purposes and God's purposes can be aligned as you step fully into this way of Christ, asking to understand more of God's love. Because once you're anchored in God's identity, then you can have purpose into the city. But first, you gotta be reminded whose you are. So I want you to hear it again. With you, I am well-pleased. I'm well-pleased. I know the journey's been very hard for you. I was recently with... Uh, Someone who I care a great deal about, and they sat in tears telling me how much pressure they feel to make all the perfect steps as they make their way in the world. And the pressure and the anxiety and the, man, we've suffered a great deal. I, I wrote this person a poem Uh, after um, just an experience on the beach in Southern California. And I want to read it to you today, not because I'm a great poet, but because as I prayed for this moment, God said, Scott, would you remind them of my father's heart for them? So this poem is called The Way, and the image I'm going to show you behind is an image from Crystal Cove State Park, where I sat on the beach, and these words kind of took up residence in my heart. And as I kind of share it, I want you to encourage what God might be saying to you. As you think about your journey to Christ in the season ahead, this poem is called The Way. There is a path to discern, a road to walk, a hike to make, the journey to take. I cannot take this for you, but I will be cheering you on as you go. Some of you are like, this is a horrible poem. It doesn't even rhyme, but stay with me. They say the way is made by walking. In some regards, that's true. The story is being written as you make decisions. The future story, you'll tell your friends and family on the porch, sipping a sparkling drink and laughing. That was when I had to go and do that thing, and here I am. That way is made by walking, sure, but there is another way to see the journey. The way is not all up to you. This is the journey where you will not create but align. You are welcome to the one who will lead your life. The pressure is off. There is a party, a celebration, really, of moving into the future you are invited to, Come and load the U haul together, says the Lord. Pack with me, but know this you will drive off, but you do not need to drive alone. He beckons you. You don't make this way. This way makes you. You are loved infinitely before you take a step. Where there'll be a journey, for sure. Where there'll be difficulties, you know it. Oh, but the beauty you'll see, the joy of it, the sheer thrill of watching your life form before you, seeing the way emerge from the steps you make, and you never walk alone. You will never walk alone if you invite the maker of all things into this journey, the one who made you, the one who loves you, the one who looks at you and says, I am well-pleased. Let's go on a walk together to enter this life of yours. This is the way to life. This is the way. So, Jesus, thank you so much for this time in worship this morning. And we just pray, God, that you would just shake us awake and remind us in our individual journeys towards you that we are not alone. And though the weight has been heavy over this season, that, God, you long to fill us with your spirit. You long to, to, to draw us to new places. And before we do anything for you, God, you want to just remind us that you are with us and that your love covers us, that you are well pleased with us. God, before we even get up and leave this space, would you remind us in new and powerful and personal ways that you are well-pleased, that your Father's heart is good and can be trusted. But God, thank you so much for these moments together. God, help us see in this Lenten season, help us see you again, help us experience you again, help us take this journey to you again.